The battle of Britain is about to begin. Welcome back to the Lead Pursuit Podcast. Tonight, we're back with Matt from Cold War Combat. You've undoubtedly heard our wonderful episode, previously talking about the air-to-air component of the game, in episode 71, where we talked about Cold War Combat ACM. I mean, it was an amazing podcast episode, if I do say so myself. So, obviously, you obviously have listened to it. If you haven't, go listen to episode 71 before listening to this one. But anyway, moving on. Tonight, we're going to talk about what's new with Cold War Combat ACM and taking it into a new mission set, Air to Ground. Matt, welcome to the show. It's good to talk to you, man. Thanks, Doug. Great to be here. Well, it's been a while. So lots has gone on. And uh, before we jump into, hey, let's talk about Air to Ground and, and all the kind of worms you've opened there in your rule set, let's talk about where Cold War Combat parentheses, ACM, uh, that phase of it all has has gone since we talked last. I mean, I know you've released a lot of new aircraft, some new cards out there. You've done some 3D printing things. Uh, just kind of give us the summary of where you've gone. Yeah, it's been a, a really interesting time. We've had a great group of backers who've been helping us to develop the game. Um, and so we started uh, with this view that Cold War Combat was going to be this, this whole ecosystem um, of different combat types and we started with jets with ACM um, being the fastest units that could travel the most they needed the most sort of game um, space so I scaled from there and then it sort of over time became clear to me that really the, the, the planes were the hero of the game and that actually it should be an air combat game and the first part of that was obviously to make the air to air part of the game um, and so we started with um, Vietnam uh, because that's obviously an area which is quite well um, known and talked about in terms of the aircraft, the matchups, um, the types of munitions used, some of the challenges the pilots faced. And then from there, once we had quite a good group of aircraft who were able to interact in a range of scenarios, we moved on to the Falklands. Uh, and we released, we've got the Sea Harrier, um, we've got the Skyhawk, which obviously crosses over into Vietnam as well. Um, and so we sort of started developing that, but always underlying that the whole time, right through the, the whole development process, has been this view that the air-to-air combat is only one part of the puzzle. And the big chunk that comes in that makes it really... Um, gives the game more meaning and uh, direction was the ground combat element so that's where I've been chipping away uh, designing and testing on that side all through this process as well yeah it's it was funny to me to when you guys released the Falklands piece because I was super excited I'm like ooh, here we go this is where it's going to get interesting and in my mind it it, it was one of those kind of kind of bizarre, narrow focus mindsets that I had. I was all about hitting targets. And then I suddenly realized, 
Oh crap! This is going to be tougher because remember what he said at the beginning. He wants he wants things to be interactive. It isn't just about hitting a ship. When he does air to ground, it's going to be about having vehicles and having vehicles react. And it's not just Sam's and AAA shooting at you as a as a static kind of feeling thing. Everything's supposed to be interactive. And so then I kind of sat on my hands. And conveniently, y'all released the uh, the Falkland stuff about the time that I uh, lost my primary gaming partner to being a dad. Uh, so <laughs> I wasn't able to play any of those scenarios. So uh, it was kind of good because I, I really thought, oh man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go down this rabbit hole of wanting to sink ships. Uh, and you hadn't really released a whole lot of stuff there. So I'm like, all right, I'll be patient. Uh, eventually, Matt will get his gaming card back and, and my local Matt, uh, and I will be able to take Matt's rules for uh, air to ground and for Cold War combat and uh, and put those together yeah absolutely and one of the things we we're looking at when we did the falklands uh sort of forayed into that was what other uh air conflicts were there where we can bring in an interesting scenario an interesting group of aircraft that had air-to-air engagements um but that we could come back and revisit in the future with more depth once we get the air to ground side out so we will definitely be coming back to the Falklands, um, and just like we're going to be relooking at Vietnam as well. Now that we've got these two rich uh, arenas, that we can come and flesh out more. Now that we've we've done sort of some of the initial air to air stuff, now we can look at how the ground combat fits in and supports that and adds a new dimension. Absolutely, and I'm really happy that you shared the the rules you've been working on with us over here at Lead Pursuit. Uh, one, because we love playing rules and playtesting and, and breaking things apart and, and, and just seeing how the mechanics actually uh, affect the, the fun of gameplay. Because, you know, Steve and I were having a discussion today about creating rules and, and mechanics and, you know, hey, as long as it's fun, is it okay? And then there was a point where we're like, yeah, but you, if, it's, if it's fun but super hokey, then it's really not. <laughs> You're just fooling yourself. Uh, and, and the reason I bring that up is uh, Missile Threat is one of those rule systems that I like, but that logarithmic range scale just gets super hokey at times. And so I was really excited as I opened up your air to ground rules, and I'm like, oh, hey, it's built off all the same range scales that he's got in Cold War Combat ACM with some modifiers in there based on your weapon system. I'm like, all right, this is this is good. I'm not having to rescale my brain to what the weapon systems are doing. Uh, and so at least that'll make it easy for me, uh, picking up the rule set, hopefully uh, in the next week or two, uh, at least before my next big trip, uh, hopefully we'll be able to get a game uh, and play through the rules a little bit here. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that comes from the whole point of view right from the very inception of this game, that it is about a whole ecosystem of warfare. Uh, it's not, this is an aerial game, and then this is a ground combat game, and then this is a, a naval game, and we're trying to then find ways to bolt these things together. It is one game, but we're just releasing it in sections. Um, so all of the rules right from day one were designed to have the ability to incorporate all of these things within the core mechanics. So as you saw, like ground units, they have four stats, just like aircraft. It's all the same range um, lengths and distances. Uh, so it's, it's not different games, it's just an extension of the same game. And you're right about when you said about things feeling hokey, but, you know, cool to play. I, th- I feel it's a bit like making a movie that you have that suspension of disbelief. If you start playing a game and you can get into the scenario and the way it plays and think, yeah, this feels good, this is fun, then that's, to me, what makes a good game. If you are playing it and going, 
oh yeah okay <laughs> but this is just a bit weird you know, well, exactly I, I i use the example of when Warhammer 40k changed going into 7th edition and all of a sudden massed amounts of firepower could bring down the biggest units in the game and you sit there and you go all right i was fine with you know super transhumanoid 8 foot tall people with 20 millimeter you know handheld guns i was fine with that but the fact that uh 50 guys with small little um pea shooter laser guns have now brought down the largest uh walking robot in the game you go okay i, I can't take that that's that's now gone to hokey it's gone beyond beyond simple and fun to hokey but i think the good thing at least speaking from my part, playing through your rules is there's obviously some intentional choices for simplification or for generalization, or as we say a lot of times, choosing to model something instead of simulating it. Because simulation a lot of times isn't fun. Um, And I'm sure you had a number of those decisions as you were going through the air to ground phase and building those rules of things that you want it to feel right, but you don't want it to be a simulation. I mean, and I'll jump ahead here, way out of the order we're going to talk about. Uh, I'll just talk about the weapons themselves and the fact that, sure, it's super generalized in that the the categories you have right now, you know, kind of fall into things like cluster bombs, 500,000 pound bombs, laser guided bombs, uh, targeting pods, anti-radiation missiles. But but the the good part is by generalizing Sure, if you want to simulate or if you want to model the difference between, let's say, uh, you know, two different models of the Maverick missile, sure, you could tweak either attack values, you could tweak AP values, HE values, things like that that we'll talk about here in a second, but you don't feel like you have to model the weapon. And that, and that seems really cool to me. Was that how, how did that play into your game design, putting detail but not crushing the player underneath simulation yeah that's that's again been right at the heart of the game since the day one um i mean the way that i play games is i have a a large group of gaming friends who are into a whole bunch of different stuff i've got friends who play 40k i've got friends who play bolt action i've got friends who like x-wing um you know all these different um games and i've got other friends who love playing games but don't actually play anything themselves so they'll come around and it'll be cool let's play a game of this and then i have to teach them how to play this game um so that we can actually play it and that's where i said when i design this game i want something that a friend of mine can come around with no previous experience in the game and within 10 minutes they can understand the basic concept um, and within 20 minutes they can be flying jets around the board and shooting stuff and having a good time um, without having to be scratching their head and going back to tables and um, you know looking stuff up and not having had to have been uh, a huge expert in fighter jets and their weapons and mechanics either. exactly <laughs> yeah so, well, that, I, I laugh because I, I keep looking over at my bookcase here and copies of Fox Bat and Phantom and Air War and things that really are graduate level air, uh, air warfare games and that's just not fun I mean it's good if you want to model a specific action in, in painful detail um, but even they, in some ways, aren't simulations because they've had to generalize stuff. So, yeah. you know, I, I I like where you've gone with it. I, I did laugh that 
adding air to ground seems like it has added some complexity, but that's always a, it's a math complexity to me, which of course I'm terrible at math. Uh, but, uh, at, at least you, you find ways to generalize it. So, so let's back up. Let's, let's not get too ahead of ourselves and get me all, uh, googly eyed talking about weapons yeah. here. I, uh, <laughs> I, I was just going to say that, you know, the, the thing that one of my, um, one of my friends said, you know, when, when we started playing an early version of this game, um, he said, it feels like Top Gun in a box. And, you know, that sort of, for me, was like, that's how I felt like I'd sort of hit the mark, was that if he came right. in and thought that's what fighter jet combat should feel like, giving that sense of turning and burning and trying to, you know, down your opponent and not being um, tied up by the rule system, being able to engage in, in the narrative of what was happening um, for these pilots, that's sort of how I knew I was sort of being successful. Yeah, absolutely. So the the interesting thing to me when you when you look at at where you've gone with this air to ground piece is how to make how to make the complex part of attack aviation feel that intuitive, uh, because it's I think people always uh, either super generalize or overcomplicate uh, air to ground, and the fact that you've put enough detail in there with different kinds of attacks and making them feel different without just being. Uh, one is from high altitude, one is from medium, one is from low, you know, putting, putting some useful uh, tactical uh, play to those. Uh, that's the interesting part. And that's really where I kind of want to start is, is talking about how you broke out into the types of attacks. Because when you had just purely air to air in, in Cold War ACM, it was very straightforward. You were either shooting an IR missile, a radar guided missile that you needed a lock for, or shooting guns. Uh, with someone, and so there was, there really were three very different ways of of doing business, but they uh, they all were in a sense an oversimplification to give you that Top Gun feel. When you rolled in here and you started doing the air to ground piece, how did you either? What was your inspiration? What did you blatantly steal from? Or what was what was your thought process when you said, okay, I need to break bombing out into a couple different actions, but not make it you know, super complex where you're deciding your dive angle, your exact altitude and things like that. Well, one thing that actually uh, inspired me was actually flight sims. Uh, I've been playing flight sims, combat flight sims, since I was a wee fella, uh, you know, back on an old 486 actually. And um, so when I was young, don't I even in- don't even think you're an old guy because I played them on an Apple IIe with horrible line drawings as you're rolling your Spitfire over on its wing to go shoot at a Fokker somewhere. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I remember um, one of the one of the games that I used to love when I was younger was the old James U.S. Navy fighters. Oh and, yeah. Um, yeah. So you know you used to load up a, an f-14 or, or an f-18 or you know and you fly over the target and i maybe having the infinite ammo on and and just just spamming you know carpet bombing everything completely unrealistic right but uh as a young kid it was a blast um and so i wanted to sort of capture an element of that feeling that's going like you said not simulation um but actually giving some options around well, okay, as a sim pilot going in and flying a, a combat sim- simulation now, yes, I might pay attention to a lot more details as to how the weapons are employed and the best approaches and that sort of stuff, but trying to break it down into, well, how do you actually use this weapon? Do you fly in at low level? Do you come in, uh, you know, and, and go into a sort of a, a scream and dive? Do you fire it from 100 miles away? Um, not literally, but... And so it's sort of... 
broke into those categories to make it an easy way to understand. Um, and like you said, there's always room for putting in advanced tweaks. And that's something that we did with Cold War Combat ACM was we had the base rule set and then we had the advanced rules. So that if you became confident with the base rule set and you wanted to model things like fuel use, um, specific countermeasures, uh, you could then have rules for those to be able to bring that depth to your game to to try right. and sort of right. give a nod to the fact that yeah people who do like air combat that we want to be able to do things in in more detail and actually simulate these little bits um but still maintain the fun core mechanic without disrupting that part and it's the same thing that you know we go well yes i've got some generic weapons here in the air to ground supplement and then when we go back to say vietnam and we look at a specific mission for that we can then say well these are the actual missions that are time appropriate and this is how they what their stats are and you'd find that they're going to be close to some of the elements in the generic table but there might be some unique uh, elements a bit like how in the the falklands um we said cool well this is what a um sidewinder missile missile profilers but because these are early ones it means you sort of got to fire them from behind in order to have a chance of actually hitting yeah and i think there's there's some interesting restrictions that you've done the same thing in in air to ground that make it uh you feel like you have some of those tactical constraints that make sense whether they're standoff weapons that you're using whether it's targeting pods that you're using to uh, to find and to track the target and to maintain a, a target lock. Uh, one of the interesting parts here is much like you had to kind of garner a radar lock in Cold War Combat ACM, now we have to go in there and we have to do a spot test. So tell us a little bit about the spot test and how that transpired. I mean, was that always in the rules or did you partway through go, you know what, we need to kind of have a, a detection mechanic? Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things that was always in the mind, uh, in my mind as I was doing it, was there are ground units that are going to be harder to see. There are units that are camouflaged or dug in or concealed by some kind of terrain, and that can make it really hard to actually get a lead on those particular targets. Whereas if you've got a tank sitting out in the open, well, that should be a pretty easy thing to see. Um, and it's going to depend on your range as well. You know, if you're up at high altitude and you're dozens of miles away, you're not going to be able to see your target. Um, so it really came down to going that core idea of a halo. If you're at medium altitude or less and you're sort of at medium range or less, you should be able to see targets by that point to be able to shoot at them. But if they're in cover, if they're in the middle of a forest or something like that, then it's going to be more challenging. Uh, and therefore there needs to be an element of can I see this thing or not to be able to shoot at it um, and modifiers that you can put in place to make it easier or harder to see. Well, I, I want to tell you I'm thoroughly disappointed and brokenhearted and apparently you didn't watch Top Gun 2 Maverick uh, because there is no bonus in here right now for multi-career aircraft using a targeting pod. So I, I feel that my entire military career has been invalidated by your game. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I, I really enjoyed looking through some of this and, uh, you know, working through the mechanics of, okay, let me, let me see what it's like to go at high altitude with a targeting pod. And what are my odds to find a tank? What if I have declared that tank to be camouflaged? Okay. What if it's a big building and see how the systems and weapons 
all equate to each other. Um, but uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna make the plug now. You definitely need to have uh, <clears throat> a bonus for using a targeting pod in a multi-crew aircraft. <laughs> well, uh, all I can say to that, Doug, is um, if you look back at the F4 Phantom. We do have a special rule on that aircraft for weapons right, officer, for multi- yep. which yep. means that it does able to get a, a radar lock and fire a missile in the same turn. Uh, and if you look out for other multi-crew aircraft that we have in the pipeline, um, you're not going to be disappointed. Yeah, <laughs> good. I'll I'll feel that I actually didn't waste 20 years sitting in the back eating a ham sandwich. <laughs> uh, well, all right. Let's yeah. ha- let's talk sam- a little. Ham sandwich is not included. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, one of my friends, we were, we were joking about, I forget who we were talking, uh, we were talking to, but they, they asked something about, you know, purpose of the, of the Wizzo back there to run targeting pods. And I said, and to also bring really good snacks for the pilot. That's, that's really why we're there. Uh, but all of that joking aside, the, uh, the other interesting piece you have in here before we go too far, cause it kind of relates to the spotting and target camouflage and, and targets reacting is ground units have activations now. So just like there's a pool of main aircraft activations, there's also this ground activations pool that kind of interacts. And, and you've got some cool things, and I don't want to totally um, you know, let all the cat out of the bag in this sense, but you've got some interesting activation mechanics where certain kinds of sites can preempt. Uh, they can, they can uh, be reactive. They can use ambush. Uh, and then there's a way to also kind of trade your, you know, throw some of your, uh, your ground activations out there and, and be using those while still saving the aircraft activations. Uh, was that was that something that came up as a as a good idea that was easy to play test or was it a good idea and you're like oh crap I've I've got to make sure this doesn't become the endless bag of activation tokens. Yeah, that's um, so. When we started with the combat game, I was clear right from the beginning. I wanted to have a blind bag for the activations because I wanted to have a little bit of unpredictability. Of- Which I hate you for because I always <laughs> we always end up having. I, I just get screwed by that every time, and I laugh as my buddy Matt constantly drew all the activation tokens for his Mig Twenty Ones, and my Phantom sat there in the middle of the board and died. <laughs> Yeah, so it needed to have that bit of a, a bit of a unpredictability, but also letting you have the freedom to choose what you wanted to activate on your side when you get one of your right. tokens drawn out of the bag. Um, and I wanted to give away for the ground units, like I didn't want them to just be static and sit there and, and take this punishment and not have any opportunity to react, even though uh, they can't react very much. So one thing was initially thinking. Oh, well, do ground units have an activation token as well? But then it seemed really weird for uh, a tank to, say, activate and and move a small distance to try and get out of the way of your attack run while fighter jets still hadn't taken their turn. And and it comes back to jets being the core of this game and and really being the superstars of this game. So then it came going, okay, well, let's, let's give them an activation, but their pool is a separate pool that has to activate after all of the uh, after all of the jets um, and because the jets are the stars it's like well this pool we don't really need to sort of blind draw it we can just go okay you go I go you go I go uh, and just allocate the tokens out as each unit does its thing um, and but then it sort of was like well there are some things that are particularly threats to aircraft that we want to be able to chuck a spanner in the works a little bit um, when you're looking at things that can can shoot at aircraft like SAM sites and going that if a SAM site is set up and waiting for you to 
fly into its its area to be able to shoot a missile at you that needs to come somewhere in the activation of the aircraft and so that was the idea then that uh, giving some of these ground units a trait that when you draw your activation token you can go you know what I'm not going to activate an aircraft I'm going to activate this unit that has this trait um, activate it and then put a replacement token back in the bag right and I think uh, I'm really just going to have to play through this to find out and I'm sure you've already thought of and written into some of the scenarios the way these activation tokens work it makes it much easier to model uh, early warning or a lack of early warning and you know being able to because the the ingressing attack aircraft are at low altitude guess what you you don't have any of your ground activation tokens initially so you can't even put your guys uh into an alert mode so i think i think it's gonna be interesting to see where that goes uh i really want to play it a lot uh, which, of course, means that I'm just going to have to <clears throat> convince somebody to come over here and play <laughs> Cold War ACM in my wonderfully empty gaming room that hasn't been gamed in other than solo games. Uh, but the the other interesting part is your, your ground units move. And thank you for not making it super out of scale. I mean, it's going to feel funny that in the game, maybe the trucks or APCs or tanks only move five or six inches, but at least they're moving. Yeah, absolutely. And it comes back to that whole scale of the jets being the, the stars of this game and, and everything being built around the aircraft. And so when you're looking at relative movement, um, you know, yes, they might try and be able to scatter to avoid an attack, um, but they're not going to be able to travel huge distances across the across the tabletop compared to the speed of these aircraft we're working out. Um, I mean, it, it works out. It's it's not a round conversion, but it's over a hundred knots an inch. Um, so you should be saying that. Uh, so man, that these a, are some fast infantry guys that are running around. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, so there is some some fudging in there for the sake of too little and it's not going to make it interesting because they're not effectively doing anything uh but too much would make it it breaks that suspension of disbelief you're like well there's no way that tank could have got out of that area you right, know got away right. from me yeah well so you also when you introduced the ground units you gave them similar traits and stats to the aircraft so let's talk about those they've got a targeting value, a concealment value, armor, and attack value. So that very much reflects similar concepts. And this this is kind of where I'm thankful that you kept the dice pool idea the same and didn't suddenly use a totally different mechanic for your air-to-ground piece. Uh, it really does feel like it's the same as attacking an airplane, except it's now on the ground and we've got slightly different names for things. And, oh, by the way the killing mechanic is different. So that was the one thing that you that you really changed in there was adding the durability uh, mechanic. Is that something you've thought about backfitting maybe to more rugged airplanes or is that really going to stay as, as kind of a, a ground-based trait for the game? Yeah, I, right from the beginning, there's been aircraft. Um, when I first developed the game, I pulled a whole bunch of different aircraft, everything from small highly maneuverable uh, light fighters through to sort of heavier bombers attack aircraft and I sort of looked at what traits do they have how do they operate what are their limits and that sort of stuff um, and so there's there's definitely rules and traits that um, 
are in the game to represent lots of different things. Um, the idea was, though, that aircraft are generally quite fragile compared to ground units. Um, when you look at the amount of armor they can normally have, the, the damage they can sustain before they're, they're literally going to fall out of the sky, there's not a heck of a lot compared to, uh, say, a tank. Um, so for them having the idea of the minor hit or the critical hit, effectively it would you'd say kind of, oh, well, they have a durability of two, you know, that, that one is the the first one they take and then the second one they're they're gone by that point right um whereas the ground targets can take a little bit more damage but also the air to ground munitions can be quite devastating as well um yeah so that was again that that fine line of we want the aircraft to be the stars and for you to enjoy playing with them and nobody has fun if if you just get the first time you shot at you die straight away uh, necessarily there needs to be a case of oh i took a hit but i can keep going without feeling like oh man i've shot you five times and you're still not dead um yeah, right <laughs> so there was an, an element that making the air combat fun but with the ground combat because they are targets as such a lot of the time they're expected to be blown up and destroyed a lot more. So um, the air-to-ground weapons are very quite potent, and so the targets, the durability is there to make it a bit interesting that you're not always going to destroy everything on one hit. Uh, there might be some things that need a couple of passes. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I thought that was kind of interesting because, you know, once again, from my background, being being a little bit of the weaponeering nerd and, and taking a look at what the odds were to kill something, uh, it's quite possible you're going to even shoot a Maverick, any tank missile at a tank and not kill it the first turn. <laughs> so there's, I, I like the fact that there's not a lot of insta-death, um, which I feel that some aviation games tend to have in their air-to-ground component, that unless it's a large ship target or a large industrial target, um, anything that's a vehicle or a convoy or a truck or infantry just get it gets insta-deathed by whatever you shoot at it if it's not like 20-millimeter cannon or a rocket. Um, so I, I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, you mentioned before about the four stats as well, and, um, you know, that sort of comes back to the core of the game, looking at that whole ecosystem idea. Everything has a way that it locks onto or attempts to attack its targets everything has um, a way that it tries to avoid being hit whether it's through agility like evading or whether it's through its natural defenses or reactive systems um, everything has sort of a, a potency of how it might attack in that way um, so it's sort of the idea of the four stats are fairly consistent it's just a case of well, what would that look like for different types of units what does it look like for an aircraft versus what does it look like for a tank? What does it look like for a battleship? You know, they're very similar but different. Well, I think that uh, the the fact of having to make things similar in how they are to kill but different maybe in how they are to detect or how they model the actual engagement piece is what I'm interested to see how it, it all shakes out. Because when you look at the stat lines for just the, the basic air-to-ground targets, and, and you know, let's be honest here, there's only one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There's only or seven. There's only seven uh, air-to-ground targets, at least in this, this part of the rules. But they all have different ways of interacting, even when they have similar armor values or 
you know, similar durabilities, uh, that there's then a difference in how they target and how they're concealed, uh, what, what their engagement ranges are. So you don't have crazy high level of detailed numbers or, you know, it's not like we've got percentile data out here, but everything at least feels like it has a place in the battlefield. And whether you're looking at, you know, infantry, that's going to be stuck with a short range shooting at something else, but is fairly durable and really easy to conceal um, compared to a tank that is slightly more durable, but not as you know, half as easy to conceal. Um, but obviously has a much higher armor value to deal with uh, armor piercing weapons. So it's, it's, it's pretty cool that there's different ways to, that some things may be easy to detect that are hard to kill. Some things may be, you know, easy to kill once you find them uh, with the right weapons load. Yeah, absolutely. And it's giving that, um, that bit of interest to the game and, and what we, uh, what I really wanted to create when I made, to say, this this whole like, ecosystem idea for Cold War Combat was that aircraft don't just exist in isolation in, you know, warfare. They're, they're part of a bigger picture. And whether that be that there's a ground skirmish going on and they're there to provide support, whether they are performing the strike themselves, whether they are... Uh, trying to establish air superiority um, and this is where the ground rules really enrich the game because it means that there's actually a reason for each aircraft now uh, whereas in just looking at the air combat you can be like well why wouldn't I just choose the best dogfighter um, now there's a really valid reason for having these different aircraft and the different roles they play and you say okay well I'm taking two of these because these are the ones that are going to be doing the weapon strike. And then I'm taking two of these other aircraft because these are the ones that are actually going to be doing the escorting and fighting off those enemy aircraft to let my strike aircraft do their thing. Yeah, and I think that mix of aircraft and then mix of capabilities is is going to be where it gets interesting. I know I, I talk a lot about the leader series of games. There's There's a point where it doesn't feel like weapons choices matter a whole lot at a certain point because you're just going for whatever racks up the most hits for the lightest weight uh it's kind of interesting the way you chose to to put all this out there and you look at the at the weapon profiles and and now things are really targeted in very specific areas and and they're restricted from certain kinds of attacks because it just wouldn't make sense to shoot rockets from high altitude um or you know it wouldn't make sense to yeah, use your gbu-12s in a specific way so that 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 these are lgbs they're made for a specific kind of attack uh, yes, you can dive with an LGB. It just really doesn't do anything for you. <laughs> but then that all plays into what the attack value is and, and what do I want to carry? Do I want to carry GBU-12s that have a higher attack value than carrying just a generic, you know, 500-pound bomb? But guess what? Now I've got, you know, totally different stats out there. I've got definitely much more armor-piercing for that just by virtue of where that weapon's hitting steel on steel rather than close. Um, and I also have less of a high explosive, just frag value. So it's, I think there's going to be some interesting, uh, play there as we go through it and seeing how the, how the ranges interact, because, you know, one of the things we didn't talk about, we kind of skipped over was with all the different kinds of engagements. Now, as you start to bump up your altitudes, you do get a little bit of a, of a longer, uh, LAR and a longer your weapons engagement range. So weapons will tell you, Hey, you add two more inches onto your, onto your engagement range. I think that's, I think it's a pretty cool way of, uh, giving you uh, a feeling that you are in fact 
engaging at higher altitude without making this game so big you're dropping your GPU 12s before you even hit the board. Yeah, absolutely. I you know, again, it comes back to the um, the simulation side of you know this is something that from playing Sims for many years, going this is an element of how these weapons are employed. So how can we introduce it into the game in a way that is not overtly complex? that we can deal with the systems we've already got. And obviously adding an extra range band was going to be far too long. So then it became a case of, well, okay, well, then it will have to be inches. So how do we create a nice number of inches, which is enough to make you go, hey, yeah, actually, if I come in at high altitude, I can just let them go that little bit earlier on and then bug out, um, as opposed to going, well, it really doesn't make a difference. And one of the other things with the... Uh, the weapons and the ground unit rules was yes there are some uh, similarities between them um, but it also makes it I think a little bit more friendly that at the end of the day it's not going to completely ruin a game if you accidentally get a couple of the traits mixed up uh, you know for a beginner right. playing the game um, <laughs> which is something that people have said they've gone oh you know uh, we realized halfway through the game we'd been using this slightly wrong but at the end of the day they still enjoyed the game they, it still worked um and it didn't like make anything break so you know it's yes this well, is the uh, i used the example of playing the migs and and forgot with the mig 17 that i had the trait of small and so i wasn't you know taking any any modifiers for being shot at with a gun uh and and it still was fun and then after i realized i'd forgotten to do that i'm like wow that would have been even more fun and i probably would have survived <laughs> if i hadn't been a moron so yeah it's um i mean i'm not saying i'm not agreeing with you there but um <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> yes yes doug is a moron agree with me now but um yeah it's about trying to create a game that it has the detail enough to keep people who are really interested in the topic interested but it also presents it in a broad enough accessible way for people who it's not a passion area for them in terms of I want to actually understand exactly the difference between, you know, a 500 pound bomb and a thousand pound bomb as to their, you know, amount of uh, explosive power. Um, I just want to sort of be look at the table and go, yep, this is what how many how many dice I need to be rolling when I'm when I'm dropping this thing. Yeah. And, and there's no reason why people can't have the flexibility to change things themselves. I mean, we might roll in there and I say, you know what? I'm going to make these radar guided SAMs all SA6s and I'll give them medium range instead of long because I want my, you know, my harm missile to come off at the same range that they engage me at uh, and not be outsticked by a long range SAM. So there, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways you can change those things. And I think that's kind of the fun that we had playing Cold War Combat ACM and working through the air combat part is there were times and it's like you and I have talked about playing with the fuel rules. I could never wrap my mind around how to properly with any of the aircraft not run out of gas because it just it was just so counterintuitive for me to have to quickly make a slashing attack and try to get off the board. Uh, but the the fact that there's enough things you can tweak and there's things that you can either simplify or add your own level of complexity to that 
it's it's obvious where it would fit in. It's if someone says, "Oh, what would I need to do for a longer for you know a newer missile than the Harm missile? What if I had you know an Argam ER?" That's simple. Probably use the same stats and make it long range. Uh, and now we're off to the races simulating some modern day stuff uh, with, with with those kind of stats. So I th- I think it'll be fun. I'm really looking forward to playing it. I th- I think. Uh, the the bad part is now I'm going to have to actually get ground targets to put out there <laughs> besides just some tanks. I'm going to have to get some SAM sites. I guess that means I got to go back to the 3D printing piece. Um, but what are the what are the first kind of things y'all are planning on releasing in this air to ground phase? So you don't have to have to give away any secrets and tell us the aircraft or things like that. But um, what is kind of your thoughts of the the things you're going to bring out along with the rules? Well, the um, the next part as we sort of said we we've, we've looked at. Vietnam in terms of the air combat and we've looked at um, the Falklands in terms of the air combat there so the next step is really going back to those two arenas uh, and looking at well how can we now bring out some uh, some ground action to supplement that and we've already got some excellent aircraft like the F-4s, like the Skyhawk, where we've already got the airframe and the model out there for you guys um, to be able to play with, and now it's a case of going, okay, so when we say on the target card, that it can, on the aircraft card, that it can carry bombs, what actually do we mean by that? And here is, for the scenario, the list of ground munitions that that aircraft could actually choose to carry as a ground loadout that you could take in for this mission. So that's the first yeah, step I, around I, that. I tend to like that instead of a lot of games I have found, much to my frustration, want to give you the weapons load on the aircraft card or they want to tell you everything they can use. Uh, and it really, that has to be defined in your scenario because it could be a specific time period. It could be a specific country's configuration that they just can't use that weapon. It's It's kind of been one of the things we've been working through in the leader series of games as we've been looking at Eagle and Fulcrum leader and trying to explain to people why just because you have a MiG-23, it's a totally different loadout if you have a export version of a MiG-23 versus a Soviet MiG-23. So there's, I think putting that in the scenario is a really good way to do it. I'm glad you're doing that because a lot of times I get frustrated when I play a game and I look at the loadout and I go, a U.S. A-4 would have carried that, but not an Argentinian A-4 uh, and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is that a lot of these airframes have had extremely long life. Um, you know, they've, they've featured in many different conflicts and carried many different weapons. And one of the things that we sort of said to our, our backers at the time, very early in the development, is said, do you want to see sub-models of aircraft modeled? Or do you want to instead sort of say, well let's make one aircraft card so if we've got uh, and this is a, a radical departure so you look at say the f-15 you know obviously the f-15e is a very different beast from the other models of the f-15 but what we can say in general is if this is an f-15 card this is roughly what you can expect and if we want to look at a specific scenario we can then detail things that might add on to that that you might adjust or take away for that particular mission um yeah, so that's that, where, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. Yeah. So otherwise, we'd be producing the same because you wouldn't really get a lot of difference in terms of the miniature itself in terms of right. a lot of these airframes at that scale. So really, we're just then spending time producing multiple aircraft cards that might have one value slightly different um, or one loadout element slightly different. And you sort of felt, well, that's something we can do on a scenario level if we need to do that. 
Right. And I think you you still get into that discussion of what year is it and and what uh what you know war is it and uh, you know a strike eagle in the gulf war is a very different aircraft than a strike eagle uh in kosovo and then even a strike eagle uh follow on in in the uh, in the 2003 iraq war so they're they're totally different sets of equipment and gear inside the airplane so you definitely don't want three different F-15E cards. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know. and, and that comes back to that whole, you know, rivet counting versus yes. the, the more, um, you know, I, I don't like using the word arcade style because I don't think it is arcade, but the more modeled um, attitude of, yeah, this is what the aircraft generally is. Um, and yes, in later time periods, it means we'll be able to give more specific equipment you know, you might be able to equip gear that didn't exist previously, uh, or the weapons or the gear you equip might have slightly different traits. It might have a, a different right, trait word right. to give it a special rule um, that it didn't have previously, or there might be a negative special rule if it's an early version, like we said for the the missile tech in um, the Vietnam scenarios, um, that they were a lot more inaccurate. So it uses the same sort of baseline, but it made it a little bit more challenging to use them. <laughs> Because it right. was prototype weaponry in a way. Exactly, and I think that having that flexibility by putting it in the scenario, one, it's it's makes your life easier. You have fewer cards, fewer um, you know data points that you have to generate stuff for. But I think it's also useful because it really, and I'm always big on this. It empowers the players to make it their own game. And so when they write a scenario of their own for uh, their local gaming group to simulate and to play, so let's say they're doing <clears throat> something Iraq 2003 with, uh, you know, with, let's say, Strike Eagles, F-15Es, Scud hunting, uh, then they can put certain sensor detection rules in there, or they can put in certain, you know, outside agency bonuses to the spot test and things to simulate something that isn't in the rules you don't have JSTAR's integration written in the rules, and you shouldn't need to. That should be something as simple as as the players when they write the scenario go, hey, you know, as as soon as the tanks move, then guess what? Now you've got a plus three spot test or whatever because the JSTARs is out there, ma- you know, mapping them for the Strike Eagles. Um, so you know, there's there's cool things you can do there. I think. Yeah, absolutely, and it's always been uh, looking at that choice of what needs to be on the table and part of the action, and what can be represented by abstraction off the table as part of the scenario and the setup and like you said stuff like that um like your early warning you know and having your uh your intel uh and that side of it um you know or uh having ground units that are providing a laser link for you and that sort of stuff you can you can do that stuff right. without having to bog down in the rules for the aircraft and the activations you can just say as a scenario this is this is how it's going to handle that Absolutely. And and I think there's a misnomer a lot of times in games, because we've had this discussion inside the Blood Red Skies Ready Room about modeling missiles in Blood Red Skies and and doing things like that, that there's there's a misnomer that all the action has to take place on the board. And I kind of accuse the Flames of War Team Yankee. Uh, group with with Battlefront for ruining us with that by having to put my artillery on the board. And I laugh in both of those games, 
I'd be perfectly happy for my really beautifully painted artillery models to sit off to the side <laughs> because that's where they are, especially if it's a MLRS, if it's things like that in Team Yankee. And and that there still should be some interaction between off-board elements and that my off-board element may have an interaction with your off-board element. And it doesn't mean they have to have a model on the board, but we have to understand what those modifiers, die rolls, et cetera, are. And, and we go from there. Yeah, absolutely. And the other big element for the, the ground expansion that we sort of hadn't um, got to touch on um, is about terrain as well, because now we actually have multiple terrain levels. So we actually have terrain tiles that you can print and, and laminate and put down in your gaming surface um, that represent things like valleys and mountains and forests and that sort of stuff. And all of those, of course, now have a an impact. Um, right. <laughs> quite, li- quite literally, if quite you literally fly into them. Quite literally, when you fly. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I was going to not even say anything and see if Matt would fly into the mountains the first time, or I was going to do, do vice versa and put my Sam side on top of the mountain and see if he suddenly realized why I was shooting all of his high-altitude guys. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so they, they represent not only a navigation hazard, um, but also a tactical consideration as well, because you know they'll block line of site and passage right. through certain altitudes so you know, you're, you're not physically going to be able to get um, a successful spot on something that has a mountain in the way that you can't actually see the other side of it until you uh, until you clear that obstacle I, i'm excited to to fool around with that in the in the coming weeks because it was interesting to me for two reasons one because we've obviously been playing a lot of Aeronautica Imperialis. There are some rudimentary terrain rules in that game, and they do give you some interesting effects as either the sites that you're engaging are higher, uh, there's terrain you have to fly around, or terrain that blocks line of sight. And a lot of times players don't think about that. And so doing that at the right scale in these games I think is is a huge thing. And so it allows you to think about, all right, I there's a reason for me to be at low altitude as an A4 because I'm not carrying a standoff weapon. So I need to use the terrain to mask me from those anti-aircraft sites on the far side. But where where do I leave the terrain? Where do I pop over the hill? What's, what's my point where I can get over the hill, minimize my time of being shot at by the AAA and still get my ordnance on target and then hopefully <laughs> ditch back into the into the valley? So I, I'm really excited to try that because my problem is most most of the modern games I have played, there is no reason to fly at low altitude it's unless someone's weapon can only be dropped at low altitude or you unless you have to strafe you know there's there's no reason to to fly at low altitude and and i think that just misses you know part of the the real threat interaction out there absolutely and if you look back at the original cold war combat acm rule set you'll see when it comes to uh getting radar locks as well that when you're trying to lock someone who's at a lower altitude there is actually a little bit more challenge involved in that in terms of the difficulty um because of ground interference and that sort of stuff so um that yeah, really i tried gives- that it didn't help i still died <laughs> <laughs> i i do i distinctly remember flying against uh matt's phantoms at one point and i'm like i'm gonna be sneaky and we're coming at low altitude because i've got a modifier and he still locked me up and still shot me in the face <laughs> yeah. so and, he had good die rolls that day yeah and this is where you're going okay well that's one half of the puzzle right but if you then said okay now we're on a map where we actually have a ridge line in between us that blocks low altitude and we're at low shoot on the other side of that he's not actually going to be able to lock us until we pop up over that at a much closer range um and that means that we're going to now be in threat range for our short range 
missiles, uh, as opposed to his medium range radar guided missile that previously he would have been able to just <laughs> that always shoot seemed us to ruin will. my day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So if you went and revisited that scenario and put in oh, a couple yeah. of terrain oh. pieces, um, absolutely, you would suddenly find that a very different scenario to play now with the terrain. And this is where it came back to the idea of that this was the long term picture of this ecosystem of. Um, ground units, air units, terrain, representing the whole sort of air warfare picture as opposed to just the dogfighting part. But we had to sort of start somewhere to start building this game. Right, right. Yeah, I, and I'm I'm super excited to try it and to play through it. Uh, I think it'll give uh, give us a, a lot of fun to do uh, some Cold War kind of stuff, and especially for me to to put some terrain out there and do some low altitude uh, European style uh, Cold War or Vietnam uh, style engagements and and see how all those work out. Uh, so let's let's talk kind of about the future after this. So what else are you planning? Obviously, it's going to take a while to release more aircraft, more sites, more weapons for the air to ground piece. Uh, what are y'all thinking is the next big plan after air to ground for Cold War Combat ACM? Well, we've always said, uh, and for those who are backers in um, the original vision of the, uh, the the Patreon we've got going, um, we had sort of a roadmap right from the beginning. Uh, and that started off with our ACMR air combat, then it went into ground strike. Then the next area we were sort of thinking we might look at from there is actually naval warfare. So introducing more naval units um, and how they might interact with each other and obviously with aircraft. And then large, lastly, um, looking at going into sort of, uh, you know, anti-submarine warfare even possibly as uh, another step after that. Um, so yeah, we're sort of it's very open though because when with our community of backers, it's it's all about these are the people coming on board to help us build this game. It's not just me and you know the the core people who I play develop with. Um, it's about going people going well. I like this game and and I'd love to see this in it. Uh, and going yeah, hey, that'd be really cool. Let's do that. Yeah, what are some of those uh, inputs that either were surprising to you uh, or were things that you're like, yeah, 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 I know, we'll get there. <laughs> I know you want SU-27s, not this week. <laughs> so what were some of well, those? Well, the Falklands was a, a prime example. Um, I've always had an interest in the Falklands myself, uh, but it was actually a, a number of our backers who um, sort of talked about it as well and, and voted for that as a, a, an area they wanted to see developed. And for me, that was a little surprising, I guess, because I didn't necessarily know if other people would have the same level of interest in it. Um, but we've actually got a few guys who, who have links to uh, serving in, around that time or um, experience around those aircraft that have been really helpful in um, helping sort of flesh out some ideas around some scenarios, munitions aircraft had, how it sort of operated. Um, and so, yeah, it's a case of um, being um, really open to what the community would like us to do and, and what they want to bring to the project and being able to utilize that as well. And like you said about people being able to come up with their own rules and expansions to put in. Well, we love, I love to hear about that sort of stuff because it's a case of going, hey, if this is actually a good idea that's working, well, maybe this actually should be part of the rule set. You know, and, and let's actually um, 
look at recognizing some of the great ideas that people are coming up with in the community uh, to enrich the game and this whole ecosystem. Yeah, and I think that is something that game designers either seem to do very well or very poorly. And it's always fascinating for me to talk to some of the designers and hear their perceptions of user-generated content and the uh, you know the the level or lack sometimes of playtesting that goes into it but it seems to me most of the successful games they say hey we at least listen we at least say oh that's an interesting idea i think maybe you got the values wrong and we might want to tweak the values before we put it in the official rules but that's a really cool concept or oh wow you you found an interesting you know loophole with this the way we're doing things we need to we need to ratchet that down and make sure that uh, that people know that thousand pound bombs have to be delivered this specific way so i i think that always to me shows that you at least interact with with your community with your patreon uh backers and it's not just hey i'm out here generating my own rules and i'm gonna you know not listen to everybody else it's hey give me your good ideas and if it fits then absolutely we'll put it in there yeah it's always great getting feedback from our backers as well because sometimes when you're doing game development it can feel a little bit like a vacuum that um you you're putting the stuff out there and you're like do people like this? Like, are people playing yeah. this? And, and <laughs> I, I know the know, exact feeling. Yeah. Or uh, <laughs> is it just, you know, sitting on somebody's hard drive? And, um, you know, so when we get, uh, you know, I, I love getting pictures of people who have printed the models so I can see that they've been successful, where they've painted the models or where they've actually had a go at the game. Um, you know, it's really awesome to hear that stuff and get that feedback. Even if they say, hey, we played this game and this part just didn't quite seem to work quite right. Did we misunderstand the intention of the rule there? Or um, is this a rule that maybe is not quite working as intended? Um, you know, so having a community where, where people come back and give you that feedback is, is really awesome. Um, yeah, to be able yeah, to help make the game I'm, better. I'm glad to hear that because that is... I jokingly say, you know, people separated by a common language, all of us from English speaking nations, sometimes when we read each other's rules, we don't read the same thing. And uh, of course, playing Blood Red Skies and reading rules written by my buddies in the UK, I say that's really imprecise language. <laughs> in America, we would have said it this way. Uh, but that's the the funniest part that, that some of this is how people read and interpret the rules and what are they what do they think it truly means. And I think that that frank feedback um, is what you need inside a community of, of, a, of a small game that's really trying to grow its interest. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess that's one of the things I really try very hard to do with the rule set when I'm writing them is to make them as clear as possible, not just in terms of the mechanics, but also the intent behind it as well. Um, right. So that I'm explaining a small part about the, the situation or the intended use of the mechanic alongside the actual rule as well um so that if you're confused as to which way it could go then then maybe that gives you a little bit of guidance to be like well this kind of makes sense based on on the blurb piece that goes with it yeah and that's one of the first things i noticed going through the rules back months ago when we first started playing Cold War Combat ACM was that it wasn't like it had a designer's notes at the end. The designer's notes were in line. And so there was very much a discussion of why things worked 
the way they did. And it was also saying, hey, there's more things coming. So there, there was always a discussion of you may not understand why this trait is here, why this value is here, but we'll get to that. <laughs> and so it was good to see some of those uh, those loops closed where you, you saw cards later on or aircraft that reflected um, those individual actions or traits that you didn't necessarily have uh, with the first couple airplanes released. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that comes back to this whole idea of the the ecosystem right from day one of of having a very clear idea of how the game was going to grow and where it will still grow and um, the areas that we still want to develop and do more in the future and and different types of aircraft that we can bring in. Um, You know, things like, for instance, um, rotary aircraft, you know, bringing in choppers. Um, we've looked at how we've got the Harrier. Uh, we've already got a model that's capable of, of hovering now. Um, so the, the rule set is all there for us to be able to bring in um, rotary operations as well now. Yeah, I think that that will be interesting to see how it integrates. I know a lot of people uh, don't want helicopters in their Cold War games, but I think it's a it's a critical piece of it. And I think, uh, you know, playing through that will, will definitely be a lot of fun. Well, Matt, we have been talking for quite a while, and I could keep talking about Cold War Combat ACM because I'm, I'm actually really excited for this uh, edition. This now means I have to twist my friend's arms and play some Cold War Combat ACM, and probably needs I need to print my gray uh, air wing of shame that is in my display cabinet here, all my Cold War stuff that's unpainted. But uh, really looking forward to seeing where you all go with this uh, and getting a chance to play these air-to-ground rules, work through them, give you all some feedback, see what we like, what, uh, what things are frustrating, like getting shot in the face by multiple long-range or multiple medium-range missiles from an F-4. Uh, I'm sure Sam's will feel frustrating to me at the beginning. <laughs> Matt will undoubtedly down many of my attack aircraft. Well, that, that's but, right. Uh, just, just, just play on the other side then. Play on the, yeah. play on the side that has the Sam's and give him a taste exactly. of his own medicine. Yeah, I'll always make him the attacker and I'll always be the defender with Sam's. And strangely, I'll always win. I don't know how that works out. Um, but no, we're, we're really looking forward to playing through this and, and getting a chance. Hopefully, uh, now that I'm thinking about it at Crucible in October, we've got a lot of things on the schedule, but uh, plenty of time. So we may uh, we may have to have everyone bring their Cold War Air Forces and take a chance to, uh, to play a little bit around the tables down there. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. I, I really appreciate it. I know it's always tough to synchronize your schedule and my schedule, being that we are so many hours apart on opposite ends of the world. Um, but it's really been a lot of fun to catch up with you and to talk through the Cold War ACM stuff. Always a pleasure. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, no worries. Uh, I would like to remind everyone that if you didn't go listen to the previous episode and didn't do what I said, uh, you can roll back onto the website. Episode 71 is there and easy to find. Uh, if your podcast player doesn't go that far back uh, for all of our episodes, uh, then just go to leadpursuit.net and right at the top level, you can find the podcast, go back to the previous episode and get all caught up with Cold War Combat ACM. Matt, where on Patreon can people find you so that they can back your project? Uh, so we've got two places you can find us. Um, so one of them is on Facebook, which is our uh, www.facebook.com um, slash Cold War Combat. And then we also have a link to our um, Patreon on that as well. Um, yep, patreon.com slash Cold War Combat. Excellent. And that way people can go out, see what's out there, yep. uh, decide to back you and then get all the goodies. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we've got, as I say, a, a community there where we're releasing um, usually about one 
element a month um, we're looking at whether it be an aircraft or an update to the rules or a scenario um, to give you something consistently to be able to play with there to well, sounds good, and I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I would like to also remind our listeners to go out and to like and follow and comment on the podcast and uh, say horrible things about us in social media or really nice things if you're enjoying the podcast. Uh, but either way, we want y'all's feedback, and we're happy to hear it and happy to hear what episodes you want us to put on, follow on topics and things you want us to delve into. Thank you all for listening. We will talk to you again next week. Bye.